Get your day started with a breakfast full of positive music, fun, inspiration and so much more. Rise and shine with Felon DJ. Weekday mornings on Vision. Life, culture and current events from a biblical perspective. 2020 with Neil Johnson on Vision. Well, let's remind ourselves why families are the most important institution in society. We're back today with Andrew McColl, Family Voice Australia State Director for the State of Queensland. Earlier conversations we've had have been unpacking biblical perspectives on family responsibilities around education and health. Well, today we're talking family and welfare. Andrew McColl, a special welcome back to 2020. Thank you, Neil. Hey, Andrew, where do we start around this issue of families, welfare, government? What are your thoughts here as we get a conversation underway about God's perspective on these things? Well, we find, Neil, that the first talk about welfare, though the term itself is not used, goes back to Genesis. And we have to read the whole book to find out the whole package because there's quite a bit in there. And Gary North, who's one of my favourite authors, has written about this. Uh, and he explains that the family is designated by God as the chief agency of human welfare. It is the agency that is most effective in solving the problems of poverty, sickness and crisis. It is the only agency which knows its limitations and strengths. The head of every household counts the cost of every project undertaken by the family. No other human agency links mutual self-interest, mutual understanding, mutual obligations and mutual support in the way that a family can. Members are close. They know each other's weaknesses and strengths. The family is also an extended institution with bloodline contacts They can spread out widely. It can call upon related families for help in a crisis. It is actually full of wisdom, uh, the way you have just delivered uh, those thoughts. I wonder, you know, for those who are saying, well, you know, I'm coming from a dysfunctional background. My family, it fell to pieces years ago, and uh, it seems to have been passed on from generation to generation, uh, challenging to actually have a godly, biblical-type family, uh, one like that you just described. Is this why we need to work very hard, holding families together? Well, it's true. It's true, Neil. We do have to work hard at it, and it doesn't come easily without us investing our time and money in the family. Uh, I feel sorry for those who have had uh, bad upbringing or bad family experiences, and there are plenty of people like that. So we have to go back and try and piece together the, the project, as it were, and how do we go about this? And where we can actually start on that is in the Old Testament's welfare system, which was firstly the family and secondly the people of God. And this was a comprehensive and complete way of ministering to the godly community. And uh, we find here that, uh, as once again quoting from Gary North, the eldest son is entitled to a double portion of the family's estate. This means that if a man has four children who are legally responsible for him, then he must divide the estate into five equal shares with the eldest son receiving two-fifths. Why would that be? 
Well, because it's the eldest son who has a primary responsibility for caring for the aged parents. The child who is willing to bear this responsibility is treated as the eldest son, such as Isaac's position of favour before Abraham, not Ishmael, the firstborn, or Jacob's position before Isaac because of God's choosing of Jacob over Esau, the elder son. So there is mutuality of service and blessings. Costs and benefits are more closely related. Family disputes among children about inheritances and other things are minimised. So if we were reflecting on those thoughts, Andrew, and how that might work today, some people will be thinking, uh, aren't those sorts of principles outdated? Uh, aren't we talking about a different culture and uh, thousands of years ago? Uh, gleaning from those things around what makes a family and those principles that we can take from Scripture applied today, how do you see ordinary families thinking about the way a biblical family might have functioned and saying there might be something in there from even the heart of God? <coughs> Well, yes, and we have to go back to the Old Testament because there's a great deal of teaching, a great deal of culture, a great deal of meaning attached to family in Scripture, right from, as I was saying, from Genesis onwards. And, and, and we have to accept, well, this, is, this was God's way. This is what God was teaching. We don't get to a lot of teaching about family until we get to Exodus, where we have the Ten Commandments, of course, but nonetheless, there's quite a bit implied and sometimes stated quietly in Genesis. So we find that over the whole of the scripture from the Old and New Testaments, we find that marriage is not lawless. It is a covenantal institution. It is a primary training ground for the next generation. It's the primary institution for welfare, care for the young, care for the aged, and education. It's a primary agency of economic inheritance. The family is therefore the primary institutional arrangement for fulfilling the terms of the Dominion Covenant that we see in Genesis 1, verses 26 to 28. God honoured this crucial dominion function of the family by placing restrictions on it. A servant is expected to defer marriage until he is an independent man. Later, as a husband in a position of authority, he can exercise dominion under God as the head of his family. The model here is Jacob. So when we're applying these things today, it's interesting, isn't it, to talk about marriage as a covenant and the children and responsibilities that they have, even to defer marriage until there's a certain time when uh, there's an independence. Uh, the thought that a firstborn might actually be the ones to look after aging parents, uh, these sorts of things, perhaps uh, some might be thinking, uh, well, that's just the story of what happened in one family back then. How do you think, Andrew, that we actually make these things and understand them as principles that might apply to us throughout all of the ages? Any, any thoughts here from you? Well, yes, there are thoughts because we have to look at the Ten Commandments, one of them being that we are told to, to honour our father and mother, that it may be well with you and that you may live long on the land. 
So when we godly families choose to honour dad and mum, it means to honour them, that is to care for them and not just say yes mum, no mum, but it means that when they get old, there are practical concerns. We look at, as we go through the scripture, we see that Elijah and Elisha, both prophets of God, both raised widows' sons from the dead. This was not just a case of relieving a bereaved mother. It would prove to be an economic belief measure. In their old age, these widows now had sons who could care for them. Jesus did the same thing when he met the funeral at Nain in Luke's Gospel, chapter 7. The man he raised was the widow's only son. Jesus himself even gave John and Mary directions for her care after his death from the cross. We see that in John's Gospel, chapter 19, verse 26 and 27. So what does this teach us? Jesus is caring about the godly family's future as we all should. Proverbs 13.22 tells us that a good man leaves an inheritance to his children's children and the wealth of the sinner is stored up for the righteous. These are powerful thoughts and I know that for a lot of listeners uh, it'll be the first time they've even ever heard anything like this saying that God has a special place in the family and as you say demonstrated Uh, in Elisha, demonstrated in Jesus that he would actually be uh, one who could help to guarantee the welfare of the family by doing some of those miracles. So interesting, isn't it, when we get around some of the motivation that we might see from the miracles of Scripture because we don't often relate those to how the family might function uh, ongoing generation to generation. But what you've just described to us shows us something very, very powerful about the family and about God's motivation in making things right so that families can be functional. Do you think this is one of those things that we might uh, actually look to and say this might be one of the purposes of God, to actually preserve and to grow and to nurture a family unit? Any thoughts here? Absolutely, because these these are what contribute to family longevity and and, and there are all sorts of spin-offs involved in this in terms of inheritance and blessing and the, the involvement of one generation to the next in terms of uh, education and care and welfare so that each generation can look forward to the older generation contributing things to them. Now, this does involve money and inheritance and property and all those, those things, which is great. And I've been I've been one that's benefited greatly from that, but also from the from the the habits and the culture and the attitudes and the beliefs and the doctrines of the older generation. They've learned a few things over time. They would hope so they can contribute some useful things to those who are coming behind them. Andrew, what about the wider family? Because uh, we might be able to put two and two together and say, okay, well, I can see that God is interested in our nuclear family, mother or father, uh, offspring, uh, even the eldest having responsibility for you know, caring for the parents in their old age, you know, those sorts of things well described. Uh, what about nephews, nieces, uh, cousins, uncles, aunties? Uh, is there something in here we can grapple with for an understanding of God's heart for caring for extended family? 
Well, very much so. And the scripture tells us, I think it's Psalm 68, verse 5, uh, God is a father to the fatherless and a judge of the widows. And we see that played out in the case of Esther uh, in, the, in the Bible. And Esther, her, her uncle was Mordecai. And when she was orphaned, Mordecai assumed a welfare responsibility for his extended family, that was obviously Esther, when she was orphaned. Now, the Bible doesn't say how old she was. Was she a baby? Was she five or eight? We have no idea. Mordecai uh, was Esther's cousin. And when she was orphaned, the Bible says he took her as his own daughter. These are powerful insights around family. Uh, I'm just, you know, reflecting on what I think some listeners might be thinking when I say, but these days we've got government welfare. The government looks out for us. The government has a safety net in place. Um, Do we do away with some of these principles for family just because we have this extra provision that the government promises welfare? How do you balance understanding this biblical view of how we care for a family with the fact that some might say, well, you know, what does my family matter? It's all been dysfunctional. I just rely on the government for a handout. Well, that's a very important issue to deal with. Uh, what we ought to really realise is that this whole structure that we have today around us of what we commonly call social welfare, that's, that's really experimental. Uh, it's, we ought to bear in mind that it is very centralised. It's very rigid. It's something that costs the community a vast amount of money. Uh, It's inefficient. And we're still to see, to be able to prove whether social welfare really works. I have major problems with it because it doesn't fulfill all its promises. And what we do have where every year we find governments around the world, including in Australia, both state and federal, struggling to balance their books. They are generally going into debt, commonly more debt and more debt all the time. However, if we go to scripture in the case of, say, the book of Ruth, uh, when when Ruth came back with her mother-in-law to Bethlehem, both of them were widowed and they were impoverished, the elders of that city determined who would marry Ruth and thus be responsible to raise up an inheritance for Elimelech, Naomi's deceased husband. So here was this this background of care coming, not actually even from her family directly, but it was the, the community, the godly community, saying, hey, these two widowed ladies are here. What are we going to do about this? And I think this this provides us today, Neil, with a scriptural precedent that the church, under the supervision of its elders, must be available to function as a godly safety net if Christian families, through sin or incapacity, are unable to cope in their circumstances. And the care of the widows that we see in in the book of Acts chapter 6 is a prime example of this taking place, the church functioning as a welfare institution. When we come to the Gospels, we find that that uh, Joseph, this is Jesus' stepfather, obviously, who the Bible describes as a righteous man, 
He accepted the responsibility of raising a son who wasn't his. How remarkable that was. It's amazing. And, uh, you know, something of a light switch being turned on, I suspect, today, hearing these thoughts, uh, even some deeper thoughts around the idea that government welfare is relatively new and perhaps, as you say, Andrew, like an experiment. But the real model that works for a flourishing nation, for a flourishing civilization, actually is a godly family built around some of these uh, Bible building blocks. If we're just drawing a few loose ends together here, uh, what would you say uh, about solutions to some of the problems that we're facing? And, And, you know, welfare is one of those big, big challenges. Well, we could confidently say, Neil, that the Bible's solutions to the problems of welfare are not with taxes raised by government or even government at all. Government's proper task is to maintain law and order in a godly manner. Welfare problems, and there are always a multitude of them, should be dealt with by godly families firstly and the church secondarily. This will require our growth and development as believers and indeed secondarily as churches. What should we do if all our government's promises prove to be fraudulent? Shouldn't we begin to take steps now? It's the godly family that has the capacity to care for its own by making plans and arrangements for its own needy and for the next generation. We should do this and we can. I'd just like to close, Neil, with this quote that I've come up with from, or heard actually from Rush Dooney many years ago. He said, the Bible never asks us to change men. Regeneration is the power reserved to God and it surpasses change. It is a new creation. What the Bible does, does require of us is that having been made a new creation in Christ, we exercise the creation mandate of Genesis chapter 1 to subdue the earth and to exercise dominion in every area of life and thought in knowledge, righteousness and holiness. This calling of the Christian man to govern the world is underscored by St. Paul, who writes, Do you not know that the saints shall judge the world? 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 2. So the church, St. Paul says, is a training ground to prepare the covenant man to judge. In other words, to govern, to exercise dominion over the world in time and eternity. Well, it's more than just food for thought. Things you've been sharing with us today, Andrew McColl, for listeners to connect with you. And really, you're talking about the issue of family and welfare today. And we've talked about some earlier conversations, family and education, family and health. And it seemed to be really a challenging thing to think of because we have a modern welfare system that does protect and look after uh, people who have particular needs. But as you say, something experimental in that and a historic view might say that family is the primary way that we look to uh, welfare for one another, whether we've got ageing parents or whether we've got uh, children, whether we've got those who are coming from uh, different uh, 
different uh, backgrounds and different hurts and different dysfunction. Uh, those sorts of things, we can really have food for thought in those great thoughts you've been sharing today. Andrew McColl is Family Voice Australia State Director for Queensland. He's written a number of books too. Let me just mention those fresh. They Shall Become One. There's another one called The Significance of the Godly Family, written back in 2008. Inherit the Earth, back in 2018. And The Great Christian Revolution. You can connect with Andrew McColl at familyvoice.org.au. Familyvoice.org.au. Andrew McColl, thanks so much for more great thoughts today on 2020. Great, Neil. Thanks for being with you. Thanks for taking time to listen to this audio on demand from Vision Christian Media. To find out more about us, go to vision.org.au.